Alright, today is, today is September uh, 15th, alright, it's a Tuesday, I didn't mean to come in with that intro, but here we are, um, I'm reading, this is Reading with Finest, I'm Finest, uh, reading Hungry Tigress, uh, Buddhist Myth, Legends, and Chiquita Tales. Uh, <clears throat> to my knowledge, I didn't know this, but I think this is the last story and the last commentary that I have. Uh, for you guys in this uh, in this book, I wasn't prepared for that. I thought we were just you know this is gonna be an ongoing tale that never ended. I didn't couldn't tell the book was ending. It was so good. Um, but uh, that being said, there's like a little other part like the intro to the commentaries, but I really don't want to read that aloud. And there's a little linking Jaquita tales, um, but I think I'm gonna read that solo, not without without an audience. Um, so this would be the end of season one and I'll come back with you in a couple of days after I finished, uh, the little co- couple chapters of this book afterwards. And then I'll, we'll, uh, start with the next thing and, and hopefully I'll be coming at you better than I did the day before. Uh, but yeah, so this is the end of the first season. I'm so sorry, y'all. So for people that are only read, only listening for Buddhist tales, this may be the last one for who knows how long. Uh, but you know what? Follow me on Finest Does the Art, and on Instagram, Finest Does the Art, all one word, and see me do my story of illustrating. All right, let's get this started. This is Kogi the Priest, the last story of this uh, book. <clears throat> this is the story of Kogi the Priest. Wait, there's a there's a quote in the very beginning of this. Let's go ahead and read the quote before we start the story. The, the well skeleton, I kneel to pray in it as in a temple. That's Sin Acura, three well haku. All right. This is the story of Kagi the priest. His given name was Ezio. Uh, and as a child, he loved the sea. He grew up in a fishing port and the sea waves and beaches filled his childhood. As a child, he was something of a dreamer. He could sit and watch the waves rolling in and back out again, the seabirds circling overhead for hours. When he was a young man, the war was raging in the Pacific, and he joined the Navy. They made him a gunner and taught him to shoot and ki- to kill. Oh, taught him to shoot and to kill. He fought and killed. When the war ended, he learned of opportunities in welling fleets and signed on hit as a har- harpooner. His gunner's experience standing him. Wait, his gunner experience standing him in good steed. Then, for the next seven years, he worked uh, the welling f- fleets, killing the great whales, the blues, the fins, the rights, the sperm. But in the seventh year of the slaughter, his story—that is, the story of Kagi the priest—suddenly begins. It was as if his life ended, then started over. This is how it happened. On this day, Ezio stood, as he always did, when whales were ahead, behind the heavy, swivel-mounted cannon. A cold, gusting, 25-knot wind blew against his face and chest as he squinted out in the gray, uh, heaving sea. The sun was setting below, the rim of clouds, but there was still time to make the kill. A small pod of sperm whales was not far ahead. Soon they would be close enough. The ship was 
gaining on them. He could make out the whale's rigid back sliding through the sea. He could see the foam beating around them. Yet, for all their, for all their panicked speed, they seemed to move effortlessly, like great birds flying. Ezio released the catch on the cannon. The 200-pound explosive harpoon was already loaded. Gripping the cannon's pol pol polished handles, he slowly swung the massive device to, uh, to sight on the whales ahead. Steady, steady, closer, closer, now, now. With a sudden terrible thunder, thunderous explosive blast, both sea and the sky were hidden behind a screen of black smoke. The air stank of gunpowder. The inch-thick line flew out, uncoiling rapidly. It was a hit. Then in a few seconds, from ahead came a second, but now muffled boom. The harpoon head exploding. The line twisted as the agonized whale withered, rolling in the bloody sea. Though men were shouting all around him, Ezio hardly heard. The cannon had been reloaded, and once again he sighted along its heavy barrel. Again he grew ready, tense as the line. A dark shape rolled before him. Again the cannon roared. Sea and sky were hidden behind a screen of smoke. The air stank of gunpowder. The inch-thick line flew out, uncoiling. It was a hit, a good shot. But as the air cleared, he saw that the whale was smaller than he had thought. An adolescent calf. They'd be, they'd be lucky to make the limit on it. But there was nothing he could do. The harpoon head exploded, and with a spray of blood, the whale died. He paused as the crew raced around him, reloading the cannon with a third harpoon. Once more, he steadied his leg and took aim. Then, what was this? The great bull sperm whale had turned in the water and was now swimming back directly towards the purr of the ship. P-row of the ship. P-row of the ship. Foam rose in the white crest like breakers before it. As it came, time slowed. The clouds parted as the sun shone down upon the blue and uh, sparkling sea. Ezio's vision grew telescopic. Telescopic, uh, pre, pretentially pretential, pre clear, prenaturally clear. Uh, he could see the 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 pale, molted patches around the whale's jaw, the mouth uh, mouth as the bull's great square head lifted from the rip, rippingly bubbling water and planned on the waves like a pearl of fast-moving ship. He saw how its wet, rubbery skin shaded from a glossy jet black to the softest iron gray. He was the delicate, pale pink lining of the inside of the whale's open mouth. He saw the ivory teeth set like pegs in the narrow lower jaw, glistening in the silvery white foam as the bright blue-green of the sea flared like flames. As the whale approached, its wet, inky skin fleshed redly in that dying sun, and the thousands of wrinkles and scars crisscrossing its length seemed to run with blood. Water droplets sprinkled along its immense body like diamonds, emeralds, rubies, pearls. The whale wearing through the waves seemed to Ezio like one of the great Naga King, 
who he remembered, according to the Buddhist legend of old, dwell in jeweled palaces beneath the rivers, lakes, and seas. The sound of the water pouring into the deep rocky pools filled Ezio's ears. Then a voice thunderous as surf spoke. Ezio, it said, do not kill. Never, never kill. Never kill again. It was the voice of the sperm whale. Am I mad? thought Ezio. What is happening? I must be insane. He stood as if frozen, shaking and trembling, sweat streaming from every pore. Then ship, the ship rose and suddenly fell. He lurched and grabbed for support. His hands caught at the gun. Boom! The cannon fired as he, slipping on the wet deck, fell with a crash against the iron floor. A crimson spear tore through his brain as he sank down into darkness and knew no more. He was flying, soaring, raising weightlessly through an emerald sea. A thin, swirling pearl and a silver curtain danced above his head. He arched and rose towards it, poured through it into bright sunlight, air, and warmth. His pleasure burst into, into breath. A, a vast whooshing uh, exhalation, a slow drawing in and in and in, in of breath. His hands and arms were gone. He had two great flippers at his side. He had no face or nose or hair, only a great square featureless head projecting smoothly f forward, ever set uh, far back on either side. Eyes set far back on either side, a long narrow tooth jaw hanging directly below. His body was 60 feet long, weighed 60 tons, and ended in a great fl flucked tail. He was a sperm whale. Terror gripped him. He felt as if he were lost in a nightmare, caught between worlds, trapped as a panicked uh, mind in a weirdly alien body. A swirling green world surrounded him, extending endlessly in all directions except above. Whistles, squeaks, raspings, and hissings came out at him, penetrating his huge body as if it was glass. He breathed slowly, and slowly, and slowly, he fear, the fear left him. He hung weightlessly in a vast green world, breathing, listening to the waves lapping against the shoreline of his own huge body. The ocean was alive with squeaking, twittering, rasping, but now he understood that many of those hunting resonance calls were the calls of his own kind. The surface of the sea was like a carpet of jewels, the light pouring down thick and slow, shifting and disappearing, down and down into the darkening haze the sun buried upon his back. Ezio turned his fins, arched his rigid spine upon his back. Ezio turned his fins, arched his rigid spine, and pushed down with his with his folks. His whole immense bulk hurtled ripplingly down into the cool depths of the sea. Slowly, steadily, the light green of the sea darkened. Emerald green became pine green, became dark as evergreen. The darkest of all greens was tinged with purple, became black, became inky black, became absolute black. Still, he plunged on and on, down and down and down into unending darkness and cold. The weight of one mile of ocean pressed upon him. His arching ribs bent. His lungs collapsed. He grew long and sinuous as a grinning serpent. 
The air hummed in the cavities of his body like bees trapped in a bottle. He hunted breathlessly and without physical sight along the icy bottom of the world. But in, a, in sound, he could see. He could see with his mind the images formed by the echoes of his own voices cascading back through the icy darkness. He glided over an undersea world of mountains, caravans, and canyons, sound visioning in it all with luminous clarity. Then there is movements. It was irresistibly drawn. His 15-foot-long tooth lower jaw swung open. He sent out a great stunning burst of high-pitched sound and turning his 60-foot body and a final gliding push slammed into the body of an immense squid. Through, though the squid was stunned, already hurt and dazed, its ten long, cold, powerful arms wrath around him. Its strong suckers gripped at his two-foot-thick two skin. It it big sliced and tore, gripping his tooth jaw and pushing with all his strength. He swam up through a mile of sea as the tentacles, thick as trees, strangled and frantically squeezed. The squid's great uh, staring, un the squid's great starting, unlidded, foot wide eye pressed up against his own. Up he rose, his jaws clamped upon the struggling squid, unreliably following the beacon of sound that led to his pod. Gradually, light and warmth and color entered and returned. When he broke the surface again in a great burst of, of clothed breath, the squid was dead. He had been a mile under the sea without air or warmth or light for over an hour. He tore at the squid, gulping it down in chunks, breathing through a single nostril on his head in a long, sweet, easy breaths. Wait, uh, uh, on his head in long, sweet, easy breaths. Then swam on protectively behind his female and calves. In the vast, languid emptiness of the glittering, glittering afternoon sea, there was neither a house nor a tree nor flower nor bird nor object of any kind. He had nothing, nothing, not even hands to grasp a single thing, and yet he had never before dreamed of such contentment. He felt richer than a king. He had ever, he, ha, had there ever really been another life? If so, it was faint, half remembered. He had awakened from it as from yesterday's dream. The falling sun touched the waves. White dolphin-like clouds leapt overhead. The whales blew, breathing together, and flew weightlessly as birds over the hidden terrain of the ocean floor far below. Their rigid backs and broad, wrinkled heads ringed with fleece, uh, fleecy foam shone like ebony in the slanting sun. The water tingled electrically between them and rang like glass ch chimes. On on and on they swam, their backs arching and rising, their flux, flux bending and rippling through the cold green sea. Slam, bang, slam, bang. Something beat loud against the surface of the sea behind them. The whales anxiously quick, uh, quickened their pace. But slam, bang, slam, bang. On it came, quicker yet, like the iron footsteps striding after them. 
Then Ezio the whale was filled with a sudden and terrible dread. It was if he remembered something of this from somewhere before. He rolled his eyes back, and there was the Ketra ship, once his own ship. It was black iron hull, hull streaked with rust like dried blood, smashing through the waves just behind. And he could see the cannon was loaded. Blam! The cannon roared. A cow was hit. She screamed so high no man could hear. Then boom, the harpoon head exploded and she died, her blood staining the sea. The chase went on. Again, the cannon roared. And now, amidst the smoke and, suddenly, and sudden terrible noise, an adolescent calf was thrashing wildly in agony of pain and fear. Then a great protective determination awoke an Ezio, well heart. He turned in the sea and swam directly on and on towards the oncoming ship. Waves broke and the foamed against the mountain, mountainous brow. Do not kill, he roared. Never kill. Never kill again. He could see men he once knew standing high up and near the point of the iron uh, pyro pointing down at him. Don't kill, repeated in a thunderous voice, his great tooth jawed wide open, uh, open wide. Boom, a blinding flash and a sharp and terrible pain drove him down into the sea. He gathered his immense strength, rose and swam on, and once more straight at the oncoming ship. Do not kill, he began again, when, when with a muffled roar, sea and sky ripped, and in the one horrible burst tore completely apart. Ezio screamed was lost in the thunder, and he knew no more. He floated up to the unconsciousness. He floated up to the consciousness like a drawing man giving up a repentancy. He lay in a narrow bunk, a single dim wall mounted ship, lamp burned above him. He was covered with sweat, and every muscle and bone in his body ached, but he was alive, and he was a man once more. He flexed his fingers and started and stared at them in amazement. He touched his hands, arms, head, feet, a felt hair, a nose, a nose in astonished disbelief. He rose dizzily and looked in the mirror. A thin, hunted, sweating, shining human face peered back at him, his own face, and yet something else, too. He was a man and, and had dreamed he was a whale. Or was he a whale even now, dreaming that he was a man? He showered slowly and dressed, weak and trembling with the effort he climbed the spiraling metal stairs to the deck. Clang, clang, clang. His steps echoed hollowly as he rose, lurching with the ship's movements. He pushed the iron door open. He was on the pulsing iron deck of a factory ship. The deck ran with blood, ran red with blood. Mountainous slabs of gleaming dark purplish meat. Uh, reeking entrails, glistening blubber towered above him. A sperm whale, long lower jaw, the white teeth, uh, bright lay, bright teeth, um, the 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 white teeth bright lay gleaming in the sun. The bodies of three sperm whales, a female, an adolescent calf, and a great bu uh, bull lay stretched before him. They were being rendered down into so much bone and meat and oil. One of those huge dismembered bodies he knew had just recently been his own. Saws whined, hoses hissed, chains clanked, dark oily smoke curled 
across the decks, and great iron cauldrons bubbled madly, wrapped in black rubber uh, aprons and high open-top boots. Men were shouting, hacking and chopping with powerful saws and knives, while winced steel cables screamed and massive iron hooks swung just over their heads. It was a scene from hell. I won't kill, said Ezio. Never again. And he returned to his cabin below deck. Ezio lay in his narrow bunk. Once again, he saw the clear, sparkling sea of his childhood. He recalled a summer night long ago. I have heard it said, his mother was saying, that the Lord Buddha gave his highest teaching into the care of the Nagas. Deep down in their jeweled palaces beneath the seas, they guard this treasure of perfect wisdom. They keep it safely until the day we shall be ready to receive our, our inheritance. The memory passed in his mind's eye, and uh, he now saw swimming in silent per, per, uh, procession before him the hundreds of whales he himself had slain. They spouted red blood and swam in crimson sea, white birds fluttering and calling all around them. Ezio revealed his own belief life his own Ezio relieved relived his own brief life as a well. Dream or no, the memory was sharp and clear. The instinctive courage and wild joy of his well life flooded him. He saw again the vast elusive beauty of the sea, and alone in his narrow bunk he could not help but weep bitterly. Ezio reminded himself through the rest of the voyage he refused to return to his position at the gun. When the ship uh, at last neared port, he reemerged from his room with his head shaved like the Buddhist monk. The, when the ship docked, he collected his pay and left. He sought out Buddhist temple he knew of that stood near the shore. It was an old place uh, with a few believers still supporting it. The About a learned face, serious man. And the abbot, I'm sorry, uh, lived there training three or four black-robed novice and several senior monks. Ezio entered the temple with the, his sea bag slung over his shoulder and asked to be admitted to the abbot. The monks eyed him curiously with his shaved head and, and semen clothes, but he was announced to be to the abbot and admitted. The tide was already coming in on the beach below when several hours later he emerged clothed in the black robes of a Buddhist monk and his name was Kagi, a name he took from an old folk tale about a Buddhist priest who dreamed he was a fish and who, upon awakening, found indications that his dream had indeed been true. All that was years ago. The sea rose on as it has since earliest times. The well that survived still live their vast unknown lives, and wellers still kill. Kagi is a, a bat of that little temple now. Some of the wells have gone, have been going there to talk with him. Some of the some of the wellers have been going there to talk with him. Some have left the left fleets and have started their lives over. It has not been easy for them or their family for their families, but they. Pers- persist slowly finding their way into lives that do not require uh, that they kill. Kagi's strange experience and his life have come to mean a lot to them. 
Behind the temple on the hillside overlooking the sea is a small burial plot covered with stone markers, memorials, and tablets. Some have on them the names of deceased whalers. Most are inscribed with the numbers and the species of the whales these men have slain. Kagi has said of his own experience, not to kill but to cherish all life is the essence of the Buddha's teaching. Some come to understand this through formal periods of meditation. Some find it as petals blossom, as petals fail, fall. Some see it as it in the stone lying in the dust of the roadside. Mothers have told me that they hear it in the cries of their newborn. These words come to me from the mouth of a, of a bull sperm. Uh, well, it was. It does not matter where or how one hears, but having heard, one should follow the import to the best of one's abilities. There are no more important words on this or on any other world. On the altar in that temple by the sea is a figure of the Buddha, uh, flanked by the Buddha Staffa Manjusiriya, the Buddha Staffa of wisdom, and uh, and. Sam Samat Samatabhara, Buddhistafa of Compassion Action. Uh, the Buddhistafa of Compassion Compassion Action. I like that. Uh, these figures were all carved by Kagi from logs, which washed up on the beach below the temple. Through these large carvings are rough and simple. They radiate honesty and power. Kagi's Buddha sits as is customary on the carved lotus throne, but the but his Monjasira and Samantha Samantha Berdura are unique. Mana Monjasira, which with his delusion cutting sword, typically sits on the back of a fierce lion, and the Samantha Berdura should sit on an elephant's back. Bakagi's uh, sits on the back of a Diving blue whale, and his monjersiria is on the back of a great open jaw sperm whale. The ex weller appreciates that, and so perhaps do the whales. And that is the last story, and that is it. That was it. There, let's get to his commentaries of that. But um, yeah, that was that was a good story. I like it. You know, real coming to uh, ages. You come, you know, lived a long life, and got to live as a whale, and that's crazy. It's crazy to be able to do that. Let's get ready to read these. All right. Kagi the priest. Oh, man. Uh, something happened. I paused. I don't know how far I'm at, but I read the first paragraph. I guess I can read it again. I don't know. Uh, yeah, why not? The original story of the of my own owes much to the traditional Japanese tale, Kagi, the priest, which is definitely like this title, which is called Kagi, the priest. Anyways, in that story of the Buddhist priest painter as a dream and has a dream in which for a time he becomes a fish. Later, it turns out that his dream was true. While in a coma in the human world, he really did for a time live as a fish. His subsequent paintings of fish were said to be lifelike, that they looked almost as if they might swim away. The story was transcribed from a Japanese, from the Japanese by La Facido heroine near the turn of the, the, the century. 
A recent retelling can be found in my book, Mystery Tellings of Japan. See the bibliography. We're not going to see the bibliography. I don't need to be selling any more stuff about your more books. It's very not Buddha of you. Uh, this modern welling version of Kagi also owes a debt to the fellow Bert's masterful, masterful legend of St. Julian Hospitary, as well as the as well as to a brief anecdote related by poet Gary Snyder in Earth House hold about a Native American logger working in a Pacific Northwest who found that he could hear the trees screaming as he cut them down. The man gave up logging, grew his hair long, and returned to traditional ways. You know, you get your hustle any way you want, brother, because I don't want to say follow me at Finance as the Art. So you want people to read your book? They should. You know? Who am I? Uh, the story is also a personal homage to the work of the Japanese Buddhist priest sculpture. Enku of 19th century Japan, whose sample but dynamic carving of Buddhas and Buddha Stafa have been, become treasured today. And to Harman Melavelli, whose masterwork Moby Dick still gives us unsurpassed insight into the hidden life of the sperm whale. The Naga realm mentioned in this tale appears more fully in the Jakita of the Naga king. The name Ezio was actually the childhood name of the monk poet Rekon, one of the most beloved and tender figures in Japanese Zen. A noted poem, poet and, and calligrapher he was an accomplished Zen teacher in his own right, but chose to leave, live alone in a simple hut in the mountains, playing ball with children, drinking sake with local farmers, teaching from the heart and by example. He began a legacy whose influence still grows today. One of the verses goes like this. Oh, lonely pine, I'd gladly give you my straw hat and thatch coat to ward off the rain. Stephen T.R. Dude Drops on a Lotus Leaf, page 25. There is a Buddhist legend to the effect that be before his complete entrance into Nirvana, the Buddha entrusts certain precious Parajanaparamata, uh, highest wisdom teachings, to the Nagas. The Nagas were to protect and hold these teachings until human beings were spiritually evolved enough to receive them. Contemporary readers aware of the last 30 years ongoing research, speculation, and experience with the intelligence and essential gentleness of whales and dolphins can wonder at the uniqueness, unique appropriateness of the Naga legends of old. The following quotes are also of interest. Sperm whale mothers inevitably help their young escape. Bale, 1839, and the and the mother may be seen assisting to escape by particular per, by partially supporting it on one of her predicles. Um, and that's Sackerman, eighteen seventy four. The rest of the pod either gets directly involved to distract the whalers or stands close at close range as if to encourage and coach these mortal danger males and females alike have known have been known to risk their lives to rescue a distressed individual and that's constitute whales whatever at 213 
All right, more quotes. In the far east, stranded whales were looked upon as gods. The mountain grand, granites of Vietnam believed that a child destined to redeem the world and deliver it from evil would be born on a fabulous whale. Uh, the traditional the tradition have had the tradition had deep roots in Indonesia, the Philippines, China, Korea, and Japan, as well as Indochina. Indochina. Hmm. Ibid two forty seven. The first of the ten Buddhist precepts or items of good character upheld by Buddhas Buddhists of all traditions and sects remains not to kill but to cherish life, uh, to cherish all life. One English translation of the precepts which are not commitments so much as descriptions of our own fundamental aspirations and possibilities goes like this all right listen here y'all number one resolve not to kill but to cherish all life number two i resolve not to take what is not given but to respect all things number three i resolve not to misuse sexuality but to be caring and responsible number three Number four, I resolve not to lie, but to speak truth. Number five, I resolve not to take myself or to cause others to take substances that confuse the mind, but to keep the mind clear. Number six, I resolve not to speak of the misdeeds of others, but to overcome my own shortcomings. Number seven, I resolve not to praise myself and downgrade others. Number eight, I resolve not to withhold spirit, spirituality or material aid by, but to give them freely where needed. Number nine, I resolve not to indulge in anger, but to exercise control. Number 10, I resolve not to relieve the three treasures, Buddha, Dharma, and Saga, but to cherish and uphold them. That's the 10 of them. <clears throat> As mentioned at the end of Kagi, Manjushiri or Manji in Japanese is the Buddha Stafa of wisdom. The lion he sits upon is symbolic of the energy and vitality of one's true nature, of awakened mind. In his hand, Manjushiri holds a sword capable of cutting through all delusion, all limitation. Manjushiri represents an awakening that is the sudden realization of oneness of all existence and the power rising their form. Kapalui, the three pillars of Zen, 377. Santa, the Samantha Dehira, Samantha Bodhira, or Fujin, the Buddha Stafa of action appears in the story, Most Lovely Fujin. Uh, Fujin is usually seated on an elephant, an image of power, sadducee and dignity of one's true nature when the knowledge acquired through satori is employed for the benefit of mankind uh fujin compa fujin's compassion is manifesting itself accordingly each of the buddha hastafas manjasira and fujin is an arm of the buddha representing respectively oneness or equality and Menaness about 377. All right, there we are. We finished, you guys. Congratulations. We finished season one. Ho, ya, ho, ho, ha. Yeah, good job for just sticking it out with me.
Um, we'll be on to new stories here soon. I'll update you. All right, this is Reading with Finest, season one. All right. Do 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 do